industry focus. The podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. I'm Nick Seipel. On today's episode, we're updating the story on blue jean stocks, which we last discussed on our November 26th, 2019 episode. And we'll be taking a look at how the coronavirus is impacting retail. Returning to the podcast to help me break it all down is Motley Fool contributor Asit Sharma. Asit, welcome back on the podcast. Thanks a lot, Nick. I'm excited to be back. And of course, this is a podcast, so you can't see, but I'm wearing my favorite pair of blue jeans to talk blue jeans today. We all are, right? It's 2020. Yep. I don't know when any, anybody has, has dressed up um, this year. I just, just uh, uh, let folks know. So, we're pre recording this episode on November 23rd. It's the week of Thanksgiving. Uh, so, we're recording this uh, a little bit early. And just one extra programming note there will be no industry focus podcast on Thursday um, because of Thanksgiving. But today, as I, as I said, we're talking a little bit about um, how coronavirus is impacting retail. And obviously, everybody has seen the news um, these past couple of weeks. We've had two vaccine candidates, one from Pfizer, one from Moderna. I believe there was another one um, that came out to, uh, today on Monday for, from Oxford. Um, so, so lots of great news about and, and folks really positive about this idea that maybe towards the end of next year, uh, we can have a vaccine with, with wide distribution that's effective. So, Asit, I'm going to ask you a question, make an assumption here. That's always dangerous. But let's assume everything goes according to plan and we're in a position next year, come Black Friday time, that, that we've got a widely distributed vaccine and retail uh, uh, is coming back to normal. How is retail impacted? How are things different in, say, 2021 than they were in 2019, even with a, a vaccine? Yeah, Nick, I'm so curious about this, as everyone is. Uh, bottom line, we're not going to see an overnight return to the shopping habits uh, that consumers exhibited before the pandemic, but it's going to be a net positive for retail. There's lots of really big retailers that have managed to keep their doors open. And hey, bankrupt retailers, Rest in peace. But now there's light at the end of the tunnel. And, you know, it's easier to obtain bridge financing if you are a big retailer. With these vaccines that are out, it's much easier to go uh, to your bankers, to the capital markets, and get some debt because we see consumers uh, viably coming back into stores maybe by the spring, summer. As you say, by this time next year, I expect to see uh, traffic hopefully at 75%, 80% of former levels. Now, that's enough with this new e-commerce uh, piece that a lot of retailers have tacked on to make results look almost like they were before the pandemic by this time next year. This may be slightly optimistic. We should never, uh, as you say, assume, but that's sort of a big picture that we can hang our hats on when we start looking at investment theses around different major retailers that things are going to be somewhat back to normal by this time next year. Yeah, one of the things I, I keep thinking about, whether it's in retail or teachers having to learn how to teach uh, uh, remotely, things like that, is anyone, even if you were a, a late adopter on e-commerce as a company or a late adopter on telehealth or a late adopter on, on distance learning, you've had to embrace it in a really big way this year because it, you know that's how you keep the lights on and keep your business running. And, and I think going forward, we've seen this massive amount of learning in all these industries. And I think retail is a great example of one. Um, and so we're going to see some shift uh, moving forward in how, how businesses think about retail, how consumers think about buying things. Um, 
Um, and it, it's hard to predict what it'll look like. Um, but I think those companies that, that are really successful in reaching audiences digitally are going to really have a leg up. Absolutely. One thing that won't change, consumers are going to keep purchasing. So as a physically based retailer, how do you shift to just get both parts of that demand puzzle to make sure that whatever traffic is going to come back into the stores? And don't forget, we don't want to spend the rest of our lives in our houses just in front of our computers. We want to get out and shop some too. So I think some will be surprised at the amount of foot traffic that goes back into some of these stores, but it may never return completely back to the way it was before. And that's the charge if you're the management team of a really robust retailer. How do you get exactly that right mix to uh, most beneficially impact your bottom line. And we're going to see the best in breed retailers solve that puzzle pretty convincingly, I think, uh, by October, November of next year. Yeah. And so, we've got a little bit of a case study on a couple companies that have been navigating this pandemic this year. As I mentioned off the top of the show, uh, November of last year, we did a podcast talking about jeans companies. There were a lot of of IPOs. Levi's had come to the market. Contour Brands had been spun off um, from VF Corp. How have these uh, these jeans companies really? Well, where were they coming into the year, and how have they navigated the pandemic so far this year? Yeah, so interesting, Nick, because this time last year we were talking about how attractive jeans IPOs and jeans spinoffs were because we'd seen some really big flops in the IPO market. Uber had flopped. I think there were a couple of others that just didn't go so great. And I think a lot of investors and big institutional investors were looking forward to Levi's uh, IPO, which that was in March of 2019. So, at that point in time, we were discussing a few months of performance from Levi's. The same with Contour Brands, which was spun off from parent VF Corp. Um, And VF Corp, for those of you who don't uh, recognize this company from those two initials, it's the parent corporation for North Face, Timberland, Dickies, and Vans, among other major brands. So, they spun off their jeans business in May of 2019. And that business consists of two major brands, Wrangler and Lee. So, we'd had a few months of performance uh, from that spinoff as well. And our thesis, Nick, was that this industry looked pretty good because it has very stable cash flows. It's not the most exciting business in the world. It's not like a software as a service type of investment. But the industry is growing at a compounded annual growth rate of 4% every year, projected to pick up slightly to 5% in the next few years. Now, that's been put on hold a bit after COVID-19. But, you know, we were excited about the utility, the durability of jeans, even as other fashion trends come and go. And so, we, we were talking about the strong brand power of Levi's, Wrangler, and Lee jeans, and also how appealing these two companies were. So, uh, ticker symbol KTV for Contour Brands, ticker symbol LEVI for Levi's, how appealing they were as dividend investments. That's sort of where we left it. They were both both these companies were um, poised for a good year. And remind me, Nick, what were we talking about in terms of the strategy for both Levi's and Contour Brands? Well, so the big thing with Levi's was trying to push into into this direct to consumer 
uh, uh, market, trying to really emphasize and, and expand that that Levi brand going to more of, of the premium side of the market. VF Corp, the big thing is that coming out of the spin, they would be a little bit more focused on, on their brand specifically, maybe push more towards internationalization, broadening their brand um, as well. They're a little bit less premium brand um, than Levi's, so going towards uh, um, the wholesale market. W- one last thing I, I did want to mention, though, to Asset along those things of what you said, one of the, the trends that we were talking about is, is coming into the year uh, – we we've seen this this multi year trend of to the, towards the more casual workplace, less suits in the workplace. We didn't predict that everyone would be wearing pajamas every day, uh, <laughs> working from home in twenty twenty. Yeah, so that unfortunately doesn't have one big major company that you can go invest in the pajama market. <laughs> right, right. But at some point in the day, yeah, and I'll be honest. I mean, there have been some days where it might have been early afternoon. Where I switched from jeans, from pajamas into jeans. So, you know, in terms of the next best investment opportunity, I really like the whole casual trend for, um, if not khakis, for, for blue jeans and, and maybe shorts. I don't know. We're, we'll be coming on another cycle where we'll hit spring and summer in just a few months here. I guess my mind is already on warmer weather. For sure. Well, and so you talk about you know these brands. There was a little bit of this of this uh, uh, trend towards towards casualization. Uh, but these stocks got whacked uh, whenever the, the coronavirus news came down. So uh, so just looking at at, um, at Contour Brands and uh, Levi. Levi was down as much as fifty percent. Contour Brands almost down by by two thirds uh, in, in March. I mean, excuse me, in April. Um, but these companies have, have snapped back. They're back to basically back to even to where we were uh, a year ago. What, what's kind of been this trajectory from the market writing them off to now uh, Contour just actually reinstated their dividend? Yeah, so the market took the big advantage that we were talking about last year and saw what a potentially big disadvantage this was going to be during a pandemic, and that both of these companies rely a lot on store, uh, excuse me, on jeans that are sold in retail stores. So while both companies are building up those direct-to-consumer online channels, there are still so many department stores, specialty retail stores, and third-party um, stores where you walk in and you buy a pair of Levi's or Wrangler's early jeans. In the second quarter of this year, I think Levi's got hit the hardest in terms of its whole arc. It saw a 62% decline in its second quarter revenue versus the prior year to just under $500 million. And it generated an operating loss of about $381 million bucks off of that. So that was sort of a red flag signal for Levi's. It halted its share repurchase program, suspended its dividend. Um, and as for Contour Brands, it was a little bit quicker to pull the trigger. So after its first quarter, it sort of saw what was coming and management halted the dividend at that point. Their worst quarter was also the second quarter. They saw a 43% decline in their revenue to about $349 bucks. But their operating loss was a little smaller. They lost only $22 million on that um, versus a profit of $54 million in that prior year quarter. Now, as the year has gone by, both companies are seeing their sales normalize, meaning sales are still down, but they're not down quite as much. And you can sort of see in the numbers how Customers are slowly coming back into stores. Both Levi's and Contour Brands are ramping up e-commerce. Levi's third quarter e-commerce sales are up 50%. And um, I think Contour Brands also had a pretty big boost um, in the third quarter. It was uh, about 43% 
greater in e-commerce sales versus the last year. Contour Brands has already reinstated its dividend. Levi says that it's going to reinstate its dividend next year. Contour Brands, bear in mind, for those of you who own the stock, the new dividend is just $0.40 cents per share every quarter versus $0.56 cents per share before the pandemic. But that's still a 4% yield at current stock price. And Nick, what's the net result of all this as these companies have seen sales normalize? As you point out, the stocks which had hit this big valley, uh, they both have recovered really, really strongly just over the past few months, and things are looking up again for both retailers. Yeah, so uh, you know, Jim Gillies uh, actually recommended Contour Brands in uh, in Hidden Gems Canada over over this summer, and I, I followed his recommendation. It's performed quite well uh, um, since July, and really, it, it just goes back to that that. That thesis that we talked about back in in November of 2019 of these being companies that can generate uh, uh, cash flow on, on a pretty reliable basis is still intact. These brands are still still strong, and if you look at the third quarter, Contour Brands revenue is only down nine percent year over year despite the pandemic. Now, part of that is that they're selling in places like Walmart and Target um, and things like that that aren't, aren't going to close to close down. But part of it is that uh, you know. We wear jeans every single day, and these brands are, are, are super strong, and folks are super brand loyal. And so, uh, you know, it, it, these are these are habits that, that are difficult to break when it comes to, to purchasing and what people wear and that sort of thing. They're so difficult to break. Everyone that I've done um, any kind of business with, colleagues, um, anything, it's all been from the waist up, Nick, during the pandemic, like so many people. <laughs> you and I are recording this episode, looking at each other via a Zoom call. Uh, but that hasn't stopped me from buying a new pair of jeans just a few weeks ago. So yeah, it is something that is a, a real strength of both of these businesses, just locked in stable cash flows. We love to uh, upgrade our clothing just a little bit, and we like to be comfortable. A- absolutely. One of the interesting things um, that, that we had talked about before this show uh, on, on the Levi's front is this idea that they're, they're rolling out a, a, a resale program or a reuse program. Asit, can, can you tell us about that? Yes, so this is called Levi's Secondhand, and it is basically a re-commerce site. It taps into the idea of circular uh, buying and selling, meaning that a piece of clothing doesn't have a beginning point and an end point, but it can keep being distributed among numerous hands. So via this site, which Levi's recently launched, you can Nick, if you've got a torn up pair of jeans that no one else would want to wear, you can still send that into Levi's. They will give you credit for another uh, pair of jeans for a purchase on the site. And there are a ton of nice styles, a really broad selection of basically secondhand jeans. Now, for certain of us who are maybe a bit older, this sounds like maybe a so-so proposition. But I want to say that for younger consumers, this is hitting just a really great concept. And it's something that uh, Gen Z consumers, millennials are really into, which is the idea of expressing social consciousness uh, through the clothes you wear. Those of us who are older maybe are used and programmed to buying new clothes every so often. I just mentioned buying a new pair of jeans. But I will say my one of my teens, um, who is 17, loves to go thrifting with his friends and loves the concept of resale because he feels that that's helping him make something of a a more sustainable impact on the environment. So I want to read a uh, item from Levi's secondhand site. They say, if everybody bought one used item this year, instead of buying new, it would save 449 million pounds of waste. 
there was an article in Vogue which talked about this new site, and they point out that um, Levi's is the most searched for brand in vintage and secondhand denim markets. So that's just a tremendous advantage in organic web search, Nick. Why wouldn't Levi's want to take advantage of this? Because it's not only doing good by the customer and their preference for sustainable clothing, it's also really great business. Uh, Levi's CMO or Chief Marketing Officer Jen Say says 60% of Gen Zers already purchase secondhand clothes. She says they love the hunt, they love finding a really unique item, and it makes it even better that it's a sustainable choice. Buying a used pair of Levi's saves approximately 80% of the CO2 emissions and 1.5 pounds of waste compared to buying a new pair. As we scale this, that will really start adding up. What'll start adding up as well, Nick, is that this is yet another e-commerce site for Levi's and it's a higher margin business. And it's a business that can just keep feeding on itself with this idea of circular clothing. Maybe that pair of jeans that you send to Levi's, maybe that's the pair of jeans that I end up buying. I don't know how close our waist sizes though. You might be a little bit, uh, how close those are? You might be a little skinnier than me. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so I, I, this whole resale trend is something that I, I've been interested in for a long time, and I, I think it really has a lot of lot of legs for it. You, you mentioned uh, the ESG side of things, which I think I think certainly helps um, you know make folks feel good about purchasing uh, um, things like that. From from a business point of view, if I can take the same item that I spent X dollars making it, and I can resell it three or four times, the margin profile on, on a per item basis starts to become a little bit more attractive, attractive as well. Third, thirdly, um, if you create a market for used items, then the, the purchaser of new items so, some somehow has more liquidity. It's going to be buying more because I can buy a pair of jeans for $150. I can turn them in for $50, take that $50, and go buy back another another pair of jeans. So, so from a an environmental point of view, it, it really you know there, there's a lot of uh, uh, merit to it there. But also from a, from a business point of view, um, you can make more profit per item uh, because you know as you resale the, the, these items, um, it's additional revenue. To capture, as well as you're creating a scenario where your your most loyal purchases are purchasers are perhaps going to be purchasing on, on a little bit higher higher rate. So I I think resale that this whole resale market, whether it's ThreadUp or or Poshmark or the Real Real or uh, or I think Farfetch is getting into it um, as well. I think that this trend is really massive. Um, and uh, and maybe maybe it gets pulled forward by the pandemic. Who knows? Because of, because of you know people are more likely to buy resale items um, during uh, you know economic uh, uh, downturns. Uh, so so you've got this trend that was already in place coming into the year, and then you've got economic conditions that, that are maybe pushing it forward. I, I think I think resale has got a whole lot of legs, whether it's for Levi's or, or for folks all over the place um, in, in retail. I think so too, and I think there's going to be so many new investment opportunities created by this trend. It's something that I really want to learn more about. As you and I were chatting before we went uh, on air for this episode, it's intriguing. As I was going through that Levi site, I was thinking, man, I've got a bunch of older jeans I really don't wear anymore in my closet. I could trade those in for credit. So, I might become a customer after we uh, get off air. Um, I wanted to mention one more thing on sustainability, Nick. And this is, uh, let's not leave Contour Brands out of the picture, although they're not big into resale yet. We did talk about their bent to be a lot more sustainable um, last year. They actually released a set of long-term sustainability goals after we aired our episode last year. Um, and th- these go beyond normal 
uh, boilerplate environmental social governance goals that I've seen put out by a lot of corporations that just seem like um, goals put out to satisfy investors but don't really put the onus on the company to do anything. Uh, they've put these aggressive goals, for example, they want to source 100% of sustainable cotton by 2025 in their genes. They want to save 10 billion liters of water cumulatively by 2025. Um, and they've got a number of other ones. I think Contour Brands really will be able to win over some more uh, advocates to its brand as it makes public everything that it's doing to be a sustainable company and to take this really intensive process on the environment, just as Levi's has, has thought through this, and make it just a lot more friendly. It's not cheap or easy to produce a pair of jeans. There's a lot of water, there's dye, there's cotton, there's so much going into that process. But both of these companies are really trying to pull forward uh, the idea of making a sustainable pair of jeans, cutting down the waste, cutting down the emissions. And so, um, I give plaudits to both of them for, for the action they're taking. Yeah, and the last thing I would say, you know, on the ESG stuff and the resale, I, I think I think that that's a really interesting thing to follow. Last thing I would say on, on these companies too is is you know what they're doing on a merchandising side, I, I think is interesting. So so Contour has been pushing the Lee brand into into uh, places like um, um, Walmart. They have a, a partnership um, with Walmart. One thing I, I found interesting is they've got a collaboration with Rick and Morty. Like I'd seen the Wrangler stuff um, with Rick and Morty, but uh, I, I went and looked. There's like this Rick and Morty jean jacket. And literally, the whole, all the comments on the post are, "When is this thing going to get back in stock again?" Which, which just says to me that people are very excited um, about about this partnership. I think they also have a, a, a partnership with, with Nordstrom. So it's interesting to see uh, the different ways they're extending the brand. And obviously, Levi's is doing that as well. You've seen over the past several years them move into into product categories that aren't necessarily jeans, but are in that kind of workwear category. And you hear the Contour Brands folks talking about trying to do that with Wrangler um, and that as well. So, so I think there's opportunities to extend. In the brand again. Every, anytime you see a, a spinoff, uh, you see maybe a little bit more focus on, on the opportunities within the business. And, and when you hear management talk, um, they definitely emphasize that. I, I own Contour Brands. I, I I thought it was cheap over the summer. Uh, like I said, Jim Gillies just really really brought that forward to me. I think there's still opportunity for this business going forward um, to 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 just produce value for for shareholders. Yeah, absolutely. It's you know it, it's a dividend play first and foremost. That was part of their original. Uh, investment thesis they put forward to investors in their roadshow before they had their spinoff. But there is definitely some room for earnings expansion in there. And I think it's still, while it's not as cheap as it, as it was, because it's come back to par, I mean, I think it's trading around 40 bucks a share. And, and, and this is a stock that had been nearly cut in half. Um, it's not expensive either. Um, and I wanted to point out, you know, you, both of these companies, Nick, you're, you're absolutely right. They're starting to become really forward-looking at how they interact with uh, customers. Levi's has this new partnership with Kohl's. So, they've got a virtual closet experience on Snapchat, which I hardly know what that means. I, I mean, I have a sense of it, to be honest. Um, I, you know, My kids use Snapchat, but it just shows how forward that both companies are in understanding where the market is going, where the buyers are, and where you have to go to get in front of the buyers. 
Yeah, I think one thing that I do think on any of these retail companies today that I think is interesting is just to watch their marketing because, you know, the way different generations respond, like the Brett Favre Wrangler ad of throwing the football is probably not going to work with with the demographic that's going to be the the primary buyer of Wranglers in in 15 years down the line. And so to see these brands kind of evolve their messaging and see how they they target some of these audiences, I I do think is really interesting. Before we move on uh, from Levi's and Contour brands, Asit, any last thoughts, things that investors should be watching with these companies? So, Nick, both of these companies are pretty strong cash flow generators. Really, the only thing investors need to worry about is just to see the sales levels resume. As I said earlier, it won't happen overnight. But as long as we see some sales uh, progress, getting back to positive year-over-year sales over the next few quarters, the rest you don't have to worry about. Uh, The only thing that might throw a little um, monkey wrench in this is the COVID spikes and cases that we're seeing now. So potentially there could be another short setback. But with the vaccines on the horizon, definitely by mid-year, late next year, as we were saying before, those sales trends will be healthier and the the water should be good if you want to dip a toe in on either of these tickers. Awesome. Last thing on jeans, the last episode uh, that we did, Asset, November 2019, we talked about Contour Brands, we talked about Levi, we also talked about a third company that's made well, uh, was planning to come public via an IPO, uh, a part uh, of J. Crew, and it's one of these companies uh, that, that was a victim of the coronavirus. <laughs> Certainly. So, J. Crew was having its own issues before the pandemic, it was sort of a dying brand in the malls, but it had this really nice property made well. It's popular jeans, a high price point. They've got a good e-commerce site. They're, they have their own retail footprint, their own stores. Madewell was sort of firing on all cylinders. And after Levi's and Contour Brands both coming to market in 2019, so many people were looking to Madewell, and we were too, as, as the next IPO. But COVID got in the way of that. J. Crew filed for bankruptcy earlier this year, and they dragged down Madewell with them. Now, J. Crew has recently emerged from bankruptcy. They did that in September, but they've got new owners. It's a private equity firm called Anchorage Capital. This private equity firm is now the majority owner of uh, J. Crew. So they are going to make the ultimate decisions on Madewell. For now, they formally pulled that IPO filing in September. So there's no IPO on the horizon. But Nick, a question you asked me, which I'm curious your thoughts on, could Contour Brands or Levi's buy Madewell in the future now that it is under the control of a private equity group, still within the J. Crew umbrella, but the J. Crew management team of old isn't calling the final shots here? What are your thoughts? Yeah, so I, I've thought about this some. I, I think Madewell's approach is interesting because, as we talked about in the last episode, they lean more into the direct-to-consumer uh, part of the channel. They had they were maybe a little bit earlier into some of this kind of resale market uh, that Levi's were talking about. I don't know if they were actually reselling or if it was you kind of got a credit on your next purchase um, of Madewell. I, I think for me, if I was Levi, I would copy Madewell. I wouldn't buy them. I think it would be cheaper cheaper to, to copy them and try to scale that into your business model than purchase them. Um, but I don't know. What do you think? I think it's uh, definitely a viable purchase for either company if they want made well. And the reason is because private equity groups are sort of ruthless. <laughs> they deploy capital ruthlessly. They are no strangers to trimming operations to the bone, but also they're opportunistic. So, If they see that they can sort of increase the internal returns of Madewell and have that uh, be a very 
attractive brand proposition for a company like Contra Brands or Levi's, I don't think they would hesitate to, to maybe float that. The other uh, thing we might see is just for uh, this company to have its own IPO again. Maybe in a couple of years, it reintroduces itself and finally has that IPO. So I could see either of those happening, but it's much more likely now that it's in more or less private hands uh, than it was before. Yeah. So all that to say is it might be a little while before we get a chance uh, uh, to invest in Madewell and just the story of, of how if you were shaky coming into this year, coronavirus was really going to gonna nudge you over. Just like um, how with a lot of different trends we talked about earlier that this casualization trend or the work from home trend or the telemedicine trend, it was a trend that was already there that got pulled forward. The the retail company that's teetering on the edge trend was already happening and it got pulled forward uh, uh, here in 2020, if you will. For sure. Um, so as we look out into, into 2021, uh, as we look into you know the changing face of retail, do you have a company that's on your radar that you think is interesting that uh, folks should be paying attention to, Asset? I do. And this uh, shouldn't be a, an unfamiliar company to most listeners. That company is Kohl's Corp, symbol KSS. So for me, this is a value play. Be careful with this, listeners. Don't jump all in, <laughs> but I'm going to pitch it to you. Uh, Nick, Kohl's has been one of the retailers that's, that's really gotten beat up in the market this year. And unlike Levi's and Contour brands, it really hasn't rebounded completely yet. I think it's still down about 44% year-to-date as of this taping. People associate Kohl's with the store closures that it had, and also there's risk in this company going forward. I just mentioned spiking COVID cases. We don't know if there will be another wave of lockdowns over the next month or two, which would hurt Kohl's business. But the thing to remember about this company is that they have really improved their liquidity position since the beginning of the the year. They did that in several ways. Uh, One is that they've had fairly decent cash flow this year. They've generated um, about $910 million of operating cash flow versus just over a billion this time last year. That's in the first three quarters of 2020. They've used some of that cash flow to pay down their revolving credit line. They've got total working capital on their books. So this is the excess of current assets versus obligations due in one year of $2.3 billion. And that's almost as much as all the long-term debt on their books of $2.5 billion. So they're really much better positioned than some other big retailers you've heard about. Let's mention J. Crew or, or JCPenney or Macy's. Kohl's is in a much healthier position. Um, they actually generated... $646 million of free cash flow off of that 900-odd million of operating cash flow that I mentioned. They've also slimmed down their inventory. This time last year, they were going into the holiday season with $4.9 billion of merchandise inventory. At the end of the third quarter of 2020, they're going into this next holiday season with only $3.6 billion of inventory. Now, in normal times, that would be a horrible signal because <laughs> you want to have more inventory on hand each year as you go into the holiday season. But during this pandemic, it's actually the opposite is the better case. You want to be slimmer. You don't know exactly what will sell through. So you want to be lean and mean with your inventory as you head into the weirdest holiday season ever. I really like this. And, and part of the reason that Cole's working capital is so strong is because they've allowed themselves to just slim down that inventory. That's a big positive. Their gross margin this year has really plunged. It's down about seven percentage points to 30.5%. Investors will see that gross margin creep up quarter after quarter after quarter 
um, in 2021. And that is going to generate even higher cash flow. It's going to return the company to profitability as customers come back into stores. This is a company that's got a lot of negatives uh, hovering over it because of the pandemic, but I think they're going to surprise people. I think this is positioned for 20 to 30% upside in 2021. For those of you who want a sort of quantitative explanation of that, I'll keep it simple. This stock is trading for nine times forward one-year earnings, and historically, it's traded at 11 times forward one-year earnings. So as things get back to normal, just going to its normalized multiple, that's going to be a 20 to 30% gain right there. Forget any earnings increases, which could make that picture even more positive. Finally, um, on Kohl's, look, they had this really great brand strategy that got shelved during COVID. They had uh, a new partnership with Land's End that really hasn't gotten off the ground because consumers haven't been going into stores. They have this really exciting new relationship with Levi's that we've talked about. And they also are getting ready to step into the beauty business in a big way. Now, bear in mind that one of the biggest players in the beauty space in retail, which is Macy's, is itself teetering on the edge of bankruptcy. If they go out of business, there are a lot of beauty brands that are going to look for a new home in terms of retail space. Kohl's will be a beneficiary of that. Lastly, they're introducing their own athleisure brand, FLX, in March. And Nick, you've talked about athleisure on so many industry-focused episodes. So you know what a hot trend that is, and that's also going to be beneficial for Kohl's. Bottom line, this company was a little late to e-commerce during the pandemic. It hurt their results. But when you just peel the onion a bit, they're still very sound, great cash flow, great brand. Um, I think they're going to do pretty well next year. Again, this is a little bit of a risky play, so I'm not urging listeners to to bet the farm on this. But if you have a slightly aggressive bent, you might want to pick up a few shares. Now, <laughs> Nick, I'll answer any questions you have, but you've got two really interesting companies as well. Yeah, so I was going to follow up um, um, on on Coles. You mentioned that the beauty brands, um, and one thing I thought about, the first thing that jumps to mind for me is is Sephora is has a store in store deal with J C Penney all over the country, and that's one of their their biggest uh, areas uh, where, the, where they have an install base. And you you could see Sephora perhaps looking for for, for a different partner um, at some point in the future in the beauty beauty space. Um, and I was just going to ask you I, when I think about Kohl's, I, I think about it being in that category, kind of along with with Macy's and J.C. Penney, why are they different? So Kohl's has been a little more diversified uh, in its offerings in some ways. In that uh, the brands with within brands, when you walk into a Kohl's store, they're more diversified for uh, price point. And I think the other great thing about Kohl's is they they've had strong brand partnerships already. In, in my local Kohl's, I walk in, I take a left, and there is a whole wall of Levi's jeans. We've been talking about Levi's as a stable revenue source this whole time. So I think it's just had more of, of that uh, broad strategy. And the other thing is that it's got a, a really strong loyalty programs. JCPenney actually had a, a great uh, way of drawing in customers that all got upended over the years um, in their regular discounts. Kohl's version of that is, of course, the Kohl's cash. So it's held on to its customers during the pandemic, and those customers will be ready to spend again. Just what they missed and, and why the stock went down so much versus, say, uh, a company that's been really good at e-commerce and also sells some clothes, take Target, they just weren't as prepared on the e-commerce front. Uh, the, the downside to Kohl's has been their 
big retail footprint. So they do have a lot of big stores in an era where smaller is better, but they've done a pretty good job of moving inventory uh, a little bit closer together, not having as much inventory in stores and experimenting with uh, opening up stores. You know, if they've got the experiment with Aldi where you can walk straight into an Aldi from a Kohl's. They're, they're innovative and they're creative. So they'll solve that problem about having such a big uh, footprint per store. And so I'm optimistic about them uh, on, on so many fronts. Awesome. Well, yeah. So, so as you mentioned, I kind of have uh, two two stocks. And I've uh, for the first one, I, I think it's interesting, and I'll, I'll be watching this year. I, I own some of it. It is GameStop. I would point folks back to Jim Gilley's episode that he did with Emily Flippin on GameStop um, a while back. I'll just kind of hit some main points of why it's interesting to me. The, the kind of quick and dirty thesis is just doesn't make sense to me when you've got uh, this new console cycle coming up, which is which is going to lead the company to produce significant amounts of cash flow. They, they produced positive operating cash flow in the third quarter and significant amounts, and they've really gotten their um, inventory under control, which has helped them produce more cash. Um, but, but you've got this console cycle uh, uh, pulling forward. You've got a company that that is, you know, it seems to be a lot of folks think it's the new blockbuster that, that it's going to go bankrupt, but they just paid down $125 million of debt early. If you look at their balance sheet, they've got more cash than debt. Um, and then, um, again, uh, you, you've, you've got the console cycle, which we already knew about coming into this year. And then you've also had this, this significant pull forward uh, in video game playing uh, uh, this year that's also a tailwind for them. Um, I, I know myself, I'm playing the new Call of Duty game. I hadn't played Call of Duty in like four or five years um, before this year, but there's just been this huge uptake um, in, in video game playing this year, which, which will definitely help GameStop as, as more folks are playing online, um, and so you've got a scenario where where the company's got more cash than debt. They're they're generating significant amounts of cash, and they've got this tailwind from the console cycle and from video game, um, you know, con- continued ado- adoption this year because of the pandemic. And then you look at at the stock, and over 100% of the stock is sold short. Over 100% of all the shares outstanding is sold short. Okay, and then if you want to start backing out into the float of the company. You've got earlier this year, Ryan Cohen, co-founder of Chewy, uh, invested in about 10% of the stock um, he, uh, of GameStop stock he, he now owns uh, uh, through that venture, wrote a letter uh, a week or two ago uh, talking about a kind of what he wants GameStop to do, move to a more of a digital focused strategy. This is someone who has had success going up against Amazon and e-commerce, taking an active position um, in the company. Michael Burry uh, from the big short, Scion Capital, owns about 2.5% of the stock. You've got Permit Capital and Hestia Capital, both long-term owners of the stock, have been activists um, this year together, own about 5% of the stock. And then Donald Foss, CEO of Credit Credit Acceptance Corporation, a billionaire, owns about five and a half percent of the stock. You put all that together, that's another say twenty-two percent of float uh, that that's that's you can say is unlikely to be traded on the market. And so, you know, as a percentage of float, you've got, gosh, like a hundred plus percent of of the shares available to transact sold short in an environment where the company has got a lot of tailwinds for it to, to present pre- you know, print a significant amount of cash. Obviously, there's worries about these new consoles. Xbox and PlayStation both have digital-only consoles, although it has come out that the GameStop is getting a revenue share agreement 
there from Microsoft. We don't know the exact terms of that, but Microsoft is giving them a little bit of a kickback, which makes sense given GameStop's position in the market. They're pretty much they're, they're the only specialty retailer in video gaming, and with Microsoft's strategy to move to this this Game Pass model, kind of the Netflix of gaming, install base is the name of the game. You have to sell the Xbox to be able to to sell the Game Pass, and GameStop is a really effective sales channel um, to do that. So. So it just doesn't make sense to me why uh, this much of the stock is sold short, given the catalysts for the company. And so I don't know what the company should be worth, but I think it's worth, it should be worth more than it is today. And it's up like 170% over the past few months. So And, and we still have the, the, this circumstance uh, uh, with the company. So, so that's why I find GameStop interesting right now, even if you don't want to invest in it because you know you don't understand why GameStop um, uh, you know needs to exist in five years or what have you or the role they're going to play in the market. This is going to be a fun one to watch because there's activists, there's catalysts, there's lots of short sellers. Um, it, it should be it should be an interesting story. Yeah, this is going to be so fun. As you said, even if you don't take a position, I hope all those activist shareholders can agree if they want to start influencing the board. But um, you know, I. I wanted to say one thing, and I know you want to um, move to your next one uh, so we can move on out of here. But Nick, the, the CEO of GameStop, when they announced that strategic partnership with Microsoft, with the, you know, they'll get some uh, amount of, of the Xboxes sold, he was talking a lot about digital and, and, and digitization of, of their revenue streams. There's a lot of hinting there. I'll just read this and then let you move on. But he said in the press release on that deal, this is an exciting day at GameStop as we announce the advancement of an important partnership that capitalizes on the power of our operating platform and significant market share in gaming to accelerate our digital transformation, drive incremental revenue streams, and over time, further monetize the digital world of gaming. So he just seemed to be to me to be throwing out a lot of hints that they yes they need to move more towards uh, digital revenue streams and I think that is a positive. There could be some more evolution with that Microsoft relationship that we just don't see at this point. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what what happens with the company. It's worth noting, you know, they are definitely overstored. I think there's over five thousand GameStops um, around the world, but I think two thirds of their leases are roll are you know end over the next three years. So if they want to rationalize their store base, they, they can do that in a way um, that makes sense. And, and obviously, you know, they'll want to keep those stores around while they've got this console cycle with, with, with lots of demand. So we'll, we'll see where things go. I think there there is a chance for the company um, to evolve and, and become something different than it is today. And if it wants to be as, as big, you know, 10 years from now as it is today, it's going to need to evolve in some way. But in any event, um, the, the way, uh, you know, the, the stock is positioned relative to the, the cash it's about to print just doesn't make sense to me. Um, but but we'll see. So, you kind of tease the other one um, that, that I wanted to bring up. This one is definitely more of a, well, both of these are, are risky, but um, probably for a more adventurous um, investor, less less near-term catalyst. But I think the real real is really interesting, ticker R-E-A-L. Um, I, I've bought some shares recently. The real real is a, a luxury consignment, a digital luxury consigner. So, so it's a resale Company um, pr- predominantly focusing on the high end of the market. Their their thesis is that they verify all the items that are resold um, on on their platform. We've got a white glove service uh, to really appeal to to those you know more um, sophisticated luxury buyers, those sorts of things. So that that positions them a little bit differently relative to to companies like like Poshmark that are more do it yourself consignment 
things like that. Um, their take rate uh, in this most recent quarter was 35.4%, uh, which is down a, a little bit. The company has had some issues this year when it comes to supply. Traditionally, uh, you know, folks would come into the store in New York and, and in, uh, in Los Angeles is where their predominant basis of, of operation would come in to do their consignment, those sorts of things. And those were down. But what's interesting with the business is, is that they've really pushed hard into kind of digital consignment and those sorts of things this year, which should position them uh, well going forward, especially when you think about the real barrier to this business is how do you scale our, our, our verification and all those sorts of things. So, so really standing up uh, uh, those digital channels, um, I think is important. The other thing I think is interesting is they're, they just started their opening stores. So they, they're just opened a store in, um, in Chicago. They're opening more, uh, smaller retail channels, I believe in San Francisco, um, and, and New York city. And so I really like to see that aggression, uh, during the pandemic going to try to try to gain market share, uh, and go after customers. Their co-founder is still the CEO of the company, uh, Julie Wainwright. She owns about 5% of the company. And she has an interesting story. He's talking about someone who's tenacious and kind of keeps fighting. She was the CEO of Pets.com back in the day, and she's kind of made it all the way back to be the founder and CEO um, of the Real Real. So I, just to, to have, I mean, there's a lot of people that be like, "Oh man, Pets.com," and they just kind of go off into obscurity. She started this this whole new business and, and is you know at, at one of the leaders at the forefront of this kind of resale market. Um, they just announced a partnership uh, with Gucci, where they're going to help Gucci facilitate this uh, kind of. Uh, resale cycle, do more uh, kind of environmentally focused things, help them manage uh, their brand, which that that's interesting because they'd been involved in some litigation with Chanel going back to last year, Chanel saying, you know, uh, only we can verify Chanel products, things like that. There are, there are some rumblings that maybe that's because Chanel uh, is invested in Farfetch, which also has a, a resale side to, to its business. Uh, but, but you see these partnerships with Gucci, you see them standing up uh, these digital channels to help with um, to help with their supply problem. We're going into this next year where, where things should open back up. And I, I, I'm just really confident um, in this resale trend moving forward, just, just generationally. It's something that, that a lot of folks, you know, in the, the Gen Z and millennial demographic are, are much more embracing. You see this, uh, you know, this, this idea where we're like, we want to get access to brands like in an affordable way through resale. And then if we're not going to buy brands, we're going to just buy private label. And that, that seems to be kind of the pattern uh, um, that, that folks follow. So I'm really excited about this trend. And I think um, the real, real, the way they've positioned themselves through the pandemic, continuing to opening open stores, scaling up their digital uh, is really going to pay dividends over the next few years. So I think it's a, a good one to watch and maybe take a small position in because it's a billion dollar company today. You look at how big this resale market could be going forward, and uh, there's a whole lot of runway. Well, it's certainly on my radar screen now, Nick. I, I had been a little familiar with this company. I like everything that you've said about it, especially the fact that it's selectively opening stores. That's always a good sign if, if you're able to do that. Do, you know, Retail isn't really dead, <laughs> and uh, this might be the best time to, to start opening up some stores in advance of, of next year. So, I'm definitely going to follow this story in 2021. Yeah, it's it's going to be exciting, and whether you know uh, the whole resale market, I think is one that folks the folks should certainly um, um, watch moving in into the next year. Asset, so we're pre-recording this on Monday. This this episode's going to go out on Wednesday. It's Thanksgiving on Thursday. Any big plans uh, for the holiday? We are taking it easy, Nick. Uh, my friend, uh, folks are local, so they're going to come over just for a piece of socially distanced pie on our deck, and then they're going to head back, and then we're going to cook at home my family. Nothing too spectacular this year, but hopefully next year uh, will be a little bit more of a 
traditional Thanksgiving. What about you? Yeah, same thing for us. We're just going like, to get a honey-baked ham and like make some sides, my fiance and me and the dog and, and all, all that sort of thing. I'm taking a few days off uh, from work just to kind of get a little rest and relaxation. But, uh, you know, thankful uh, always to get a little bit of, you know, good food and a little bit of time off. Uh, and so uh, I'm not complaining uh, too much. Yeah, same here. I hope everyone has a really wonderful Thanksgiving. Awesome. Always love having you on the podcast once again. Thanks so much for asking me, Nick. This was a blast. Hey, everybody. Just a quick programming note for the podcast. With U.S. Thanksgiving falling on this Thursday, there will be no podcast on Thursday or Friday this week as Dylan and I take a little bit of time off to spend with our families. The podcast will return, however, as regularly scheduled on Monday with Jason Moser and the financials team. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Annie Franks for mixing the show. For Asit Sharma, I'm Nick Seipel. Happy Thanksgiving. Thanks for listening, and Fool on. <laughs>